Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. This is Ravi Gupta. And once again, we are welcoming on our friend Isaac Saul from Tangle. Isaac, welcome back from vacation. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be back. Recharge, ready to rock, man. Well, okay. First thing I wanted to ask you about, you just wrote a piece about Vivek Ramaswamy. And I wanted to talk to you before you even wrote that piece about this concept of populism, which it's kind of driving me crazy because <laughs> it's being thrown around and I don't think it's been defined really well in the political vernacular. And I think Vivek is a good example of this. The people who are being branded populists seem to be like unlikely uh, vessels for at least any fair reading of what populism is. I find it odd that our two most prominent populist figures today are two billionaires. <laughs> you know, not that you have to be one of those. Uh, ordinary people to be populist, but it seems weird that we keep time and again having these vessels for populism who themselves are mega elite. And even if you look on the left, like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, like our populist figures aren't being drawn from the quote unquote ordinary people. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, this was always the big contradiction with Trump was that he was kind of speaking as the voice of the outsider, the voice of the forgotten people, the kind of populist candidate. And then it was like, you know, he spent his entire adult life as a rich millionaire, billionaire in New York and was a Democratic donor. And, you know, his his whole life was built around like the most elite class of the kind of Manhattanite Americans. So I struggle with the definition a lot too. I share your frustration with it. I think one thing that is happening and that I think was part of Trump's appeal and also is part of Ramaswamy's appeal is that they are class traders to the elite class that they are members of. And that is sort of how they pitch themselves. I mean, Trump was great at this in the 2016 debates. I remember vividly when he would be up there and saying things like, I know how this works. I've given these people money and then they come and do me a favor. And it was like, nobody had ever said that out loud on a debate stage before. And there was something about him that was so novel in that way. Ramaswamy's a little different and I, I struggle with him as well. He's sort of doing this whole, I'm the truth sayer. I speak honestly about tough issues things. I think maybe he's a populist on some kind of culture war issues. Like, you know, if you poll Americans about whether trans women should be able to compete in girls or women's sports, most of them actually say no. And Ramaswamy's going to take that position and say, like, he's brave enough to stand up and say that. I don't really think it's that brave to say something that like a bunch of people believe. Like that doesn't strike me as a big, brave, you know, truth sayer thing. But that's kind of like his populist take is I'm a normie when it comes to sort of the woke politics that are happening in America. But then it's like he is literally one of the youngest billionaires in the country who went to Yale Law School and Harvard. And he's basically as elite as elite gets in America. So it's a tad bit odd to see him hit these notes when it's like, it's it's not like he worked in a factory and then rose the ranks of politics and knows what it's like to do a, you know, a grueling nine to five in the coal mine or whatever. It's well, it, not, he's not that guy. It's interesting. You look at our, our so-called populists in the United States, they all have this profile. Josh Hawley, who I went to law school with. Uh, I went to law school with both of these guys, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, you know, and I will, to the extent anybody cares, we can come back around to me. But then you have J.D. Vance, who I think is closer, but still also went to law school, <laughs> my law school. It's like, you know, Yale Law School is somehow is becoming the populist factory. And I'm like, come on, guys. Like, I, at least Vince has the story of coming from the places that he's you know, intending to serve, like, and has distilled it down. Like, if you compare Hillbilly Elegy, no matter what people feel about that book, to something like, you know, Woke Incorporated or whatever it's called that, uh, that Ramaswamy wrote, one of them is a potentially ghost-written screed that anybody could have written. And the other is a very personal story connecting to the people who he grew up with. And I think like one of the things about this populism is like, and I'm not saying that makes one of them bad or one of them good. It just makes one of them a more accurate sort of vessel for the people he grew up with, or at least a stronger connection to it. But I think like one person after another 
in this American context calls themselves a populist, almost all of them are squarely within the super uber elite. And I don't think that's accidental. So this is like my kind of theory and this is like true populists, right? Like if you look around the world, like what, what, where this term has come from, like somebody like Narendra Modi is a populist, like in the traditional historical perspective and in the sort of emotionally truthful perspective. He was a, he was selling tea on the streets. He came from nothing and he rose based on a combination of an economic and religious argument that was also popularist, you know, which is like a term I think like Iglesias uses like, like popular and populist sometimes, you know, often go hand in hand. And Modi was, regardless of how people feel about it, and we've done a lot on like talking about like what's going on with Modi, he was speaking to a truth that he, he came up on, that he made clear to the people you know, the, the sort of a, a, a huge majority of Indians who felt like they weren't being heard. Uh, and that's why he's got like 70 something percent of the support of his people, like Putin level numbers. When I look in the US, it's like a mil- it's billionaires, or in the case of like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, millionaires who think like elites, who talk like elites, and who feel like they're fashioning their politics based on what can help them get elected and gain notoriety versus the other way around, which is fashioning your politics based on where you came from and then trying to sell it to a larger population. I don't know. That's my theory. I, I think it's a good theory. I mean, I it's hard to know what someone like Vivek Ramaswamy actually believes. I'm not 100% sure how much he's positioning himself because he's trying to win the Trump voter because he wants to be in the Trump administration because he's doing what he's doing with like these really sincerely long-held beliefs. I mean, I heard him talking about his foreign policy stuff. And, you know, I wrote about this in the edition of Tangle today where he's like, yeah, I've spent the last six months like thinking really long and hard about how to solve the war in Ukraine. And it's like, okay, is that what you did to enter this race? Like you you thought for six months about what issues were important to most Americans and talked to a bunch of people in your circle and now you're presenting this campaign? Because like, I want somebody who's like lived it and, you know, has the, re- like somebody like JD Vance is a great example of someone who I agree with him about a lot of stuff. I disagree with him about a lot of stuff. But I find his populism that comes from this experience of, you know, living as a quote unquote ordinary American so much more genuine because I know a lot of ordinary Americans. I live in a part of the country with a lot of quote unquote ordinary average Americans demographically, economically, whatever. And it's like the stuff that they talk about is the same kind of stuff that he talks about in his book. It's the opioid crisis. It's wages. It's like not being able to find good health insurance with a job. It's it's these things that really hurt most quote unquote ordinary Americans. Whereas like, I don't think a ton of normal Americans are sitting around all day thinking about, you know, ESG. trans issues and yeah, <laughs> ESG. Exactly. Yeah. It's like this stuff that he cared about as a hedge fund manager but now he's trying to reframe is like what matters for your average American making 40 grand a year and trying to pay for food and a babysitter. Like it just, it doesn't fit for me, which is definitely part of the, something that makes it feel like so not genuine. And to your point, I think it is sort of what these people imagine ordinary people really care about. I think what Trump did work because he had real policy positions on trade and immigration that, actually mattered to people and was enough to motivate voters and that he went against a candidate who I thought was pretty weak in Hillary Clinton in 2016. But again, it's worth noting that like, you know, he's pretty much lost every meaningful election since then as the representative of the party. So maybe it isn't that good of a plan. I'm trying to think of who the last true populist in the sort of Modi sense was that the United States had. And it's honestly hard to even think about it because I think in part, like our country is so good at producing rich people that it's like, (laughs) it's hard to imagine anybody on the national stage who wasn't. I mean, I guess Jimmy Carter, right? Yeah. I mean, I think in the modern era, Obama was probably the closest, like he was still elite and, you know, but, but he had sort of the, I'm a community organizer 
type vibe and I think spoke to the populist movement in a way that was appealing to people. I mean, he was like the original outsider who won, but yeah, yeah he also had a pretty, you know, luxe upbringing mm. and wasn't ordinary in any really normal sense of the word being like, you know, living in Kenya and Hawaii and whatever. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to, it is, I agree. It's hard to think of anybody who comes to mind genuinely. It's weird because I think people talk about how hard it is, you know, to, to go from the bottom to the top of this country. It's actually a lot easier than almost anywhere else. And like, chances are, if you're smart, Bill Clinton's a good example of this. Bill Clinton came from nothing, but he was a genius and very talented for whatever you think of him. He, he was meant to do something like what he did and wound up going, becoming a Rhodes Scholar and going to Yale Law School again, by the way. Like, so it's like the, so like if you're, if you're somebody of like a pretty decent amount of talent, you're gonna wind up getting that elite shine in a way. So that's what makes Vance an interesting model because in the end, like if you're like Fetterman, you know, I, I actually, I've heard Fetterman actually doesn't come from like a blue collar background. I don't know a lot about his background, but like, but Vance is a good example of somebody who, like he basically came up because our country is really good at recognizing smart people and putting in the right position, but he didn't really come from that. Like he's almost in the Bill Clinton mold in that sense. Yeah. I, I also think there's sort of this unsaid part of all this where we talk about these populists that, you know, I think the Oxford definition is a good definition of like appealing to the concerns of ordinary Americans or whatever, but it's like ordinary Americans don't, agree about anything the th yeah. yeah so you know you you can say you're a populist and maybe you you the issues that you're really focused on in my opinion the populist would be focused on things like you know wages and the opioid crisis and immigration i think those are real issues a lot of americans care about but that doesn't like tell me anything about you as a candidate it's right. what you know what do you what are your solutions and What's frustrating for me is that people like Vivek Ramaswamy sort of claim this populist mantle and then convince themselves that their view on these issues is the view held by ordinary Americans everywhere when it's really not because ordinary Americans are really divided and feel differently about these issues. So yeah. I don't know. I'd be, I'd love to never hear the term again, I guess. The more, now you're getting me fired up, the more I think Well, because I hear it everywhere. And <laughs> what, what drives me crazy about it is I grew up in a single, my mom was, you know, worked two jobs, raised me by herself. I grew up in Staten Island, which is like, if there was a place anybody would call populist, I literally grew up on top of the largest landfill the world has ever seen. <laughs> And we are like your classic Obama to Trump district where people are like F the system and all that. And then I hear from just one person after another, and I've been hearing on the left and the right, that I'm somehow out of touch because I'm not like a like Warren, Bernie, Trump, Ramaswamy thinker. And that like, I'm not like grabbing onto these like sweeping changes to society. Whereas I'm like, I look around and I'm like, yeah, Trump did very well where I grew up. He also manipulated a lot of the people I grew up. But at the same time, like four years of that, people in Staten Island aren't any better off, right? We're not in Iowa where we could point to like, a, you know, a tariff policy or farm policy if you interview those voters, right? And I'm like, most of these people that I talk to who use the term populist, they're not actually pointing to popularism, right? Because if you were to look at Vivek Ramaswamy, he's, you know, he's, at least flirted with the idea that climate change isn't real. As you pointed out in your piece, it wasn't exactly clear what he was trying to say. But like, I don't know, I haven't looked at the polling, but I imagine most Americans actually think that climate change is a threat, whether they rank that their number one issue or not, I'm not sure. If you look at his abortion positions, I imagine those aren't super popular. And I certainly wouldn't imagine like abolishing the FBI would be popular with mainstream America. So I'm like, well, what does this even mean? You know, are the, is the average American like, let's get rid of the FBI? Maybe. I, I certainly haven't seen that data. Yeah. Or abolish the Department of Education, you know, or stop funding the Ukraine in their war against Russia, which is also, by the way, a pretty unpopular position among Americans. Like, I think a lot of people view this stuff in more nuanced and complex ways than he thinks. So, yeah, I mean, it's a frustrating trap. And again, to me, it strikes me as like somebody trying to do their best 
Trump impersonation, which I don't know how you win a nomination like that. I mean, you have the real thing in the race. And I get it if like he wants to frame himself as Trump without the baggage, but nobody's going to choose the knockoff Coca-Cola when the real Coca-Cola is right there. And it just doesn't seem like a winning strategy to me. It doesn't seem particularly genuine. And I think those are kind of my, you know, my biggest gripes with him, even though I think some of the stuff he's saying is totally fair or true or, you know, representative of frustrations a lot of people do have. It's just, it's just speaking for this whole class of people that you've never really actually spent any time with or around or amongst (laughs) seems so disingenuous. Well, you know, our country has a long history of this. If you look at the Kennedys, right? Like people look at RFK. And RFK on the left, you know, since I was a little kid, or like they look at him like this big anti-poverty crusader, this guy that connected and all that. And if you look at the Kennedys, you're like, this family couldn't have been further from the reality <laughs> of America. Uh, you know, so I, you know, the, he has a lane, and I think he's doing everything he possibly. One thing you and I definitely agree on is that he's certainly effectively campaigning, and like the question of what is true and what is effective are two separate questions, and. He certainly is doing what he needs to do, perhaps not to win the nomination, which seems unlikely, but you know, as a the youngest person in the race, to set himself up for future races and or some prominent position in the Trump administration. So he he definitely seems to be doing what he needs to do. Yeah, he's a great public speaker. He's good at insulting the other candidates on stage in a way that you know, feels good to watch. I mean, I loved it when he called out Chris Christie for running a presidential campaign that's pretty much based on a personal grievance. Like, you shouldn't be up there. I totally agree. I think it's a joke. You know, when the candidates get asked a question and they go into what's clearly a scripted monologue and he asks if we're done with the pre-canned talking points that everyone's been rehearsing, I love that. Like, I think it's good to watch that to break the, the kind of third wall with the audience and talk to people in a real way. But on the issues, it seems like... He's just this really smart guy who did a really good job in his career and now thinks that he can just do whatever he wants. It's like the classic tech bro thing. Like he's an expert in biotech. And so now he thinks he can run the country and be president. And I just don't think we should take somebody seriously who has no governing experience, no executive experience of any kind in in this way. And clearly a bunch of half-baked political ideas that he's not going to be able to execute like abolishing the FBI or the Department of Education, which is never going to happen. Okay. Well, we'll have to get you and Ricky to have to hash that out because she actually went down to New Hampshire, spent some time with them on the trail. So maybe the next time we get you two together. To talk I would to love you. to. <laughs> you know, I, I think that she would probably, I think she probably has on this podcast described the term populist to him. So I think we'll, we'll have to give her an opportunity to give her a side there. Let's actually, you mentioned Ukraine. We haven't talked about Ukraine a lot on this podcast, but I think with the uh, Pergozin unfortunate accident, <laughs> we should say. I mean, what are the chances? Actually, you did look at the chances. Tell us, statistically yeah. speaking, how unlucky is this guy? Yeah, I looked it up. And I, I want to make sure I get it right, so I'll just read it to you. But uh, aviation accidents are typically measured in the number of accidents per one hundred thousand flight hours. And the odds of a private plane accident are about one in 100,000 hours. And more than four-fifths of those accidents do not end in loss of life, while the odds of a commercial plane crash are about one in 16.7 million. So, you know, he was on sort of a larger private plane, not flying like a little Cessna. There were apparently 10 people aboard or something like that. Whatever it is, I assume it's probably somewhere between one in 100,000 and one in 16.7 million for the plane to crash. But for it to spontaneously combust in midair and all 10 people on board to die does not seem particularly likely to me as an accident. So I think it's pretty obvious that this was intentional. Now, maybe, you know, pure speculation, just keeping your mind open to other possibilities, there's a world where. This was orchestrated by some other foreign intelligence operation. Ukraine certainly didn't like Prigozhin. Maybe the United States, for some reason, wanted him dead. But, you know, there's one person who had a very clear grievance with him and also the means to do this. I mean, it happened a couple hundred miles north of Moscow. 
and yeah, it was Putin. I mean, I think it's pretty. Putin obvious. did seem really worked up over this when he was asked. Yeah, about- yeah, he <laughs> he sort of gives this quote that's just like, yeah, complicated guy, complicated fate. He made some mistakes. You know, we also didn't do it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I think that answer obviously gives it away. Like if the accident itself gave it away, but I think like, had this been Ukraine or the United States, Putin's answer would have been much different. Right. And it's not like he doesn't want us to know. I mean, it's important for his image. He's like a tough guy, you know, he needs to show that, yeah. There's this, the new like heterodox, substack-y worldview stuff I really appreciate as an addition to the full spectrum of commentary. And I think it's great that we don't just like rely on establishment media for our narratives anymore, but it's eating some people's brains. I mean, when I go on Twitter and there are these kind of like heterodox, fire breathing left and right wing bloggers who are just criticizing US media for their presumption that this was. Putin or Russia that was behind Prigozhin dying and not leaving our minds open to other possibilities. It's like, you're doing more than Putin's doing. Like he, he isn't even putting in that much effort to defend himself because he doesn't want to. Like the message is that this guy attempted this weird 24 hour long mutiny where he like marched his troops towards Moscow and made a big fuss about it. And I told him he was going to get let off without any punishment. And then he went around the country sort of acting like he was a new celebrity and superstar. And so I made him pay for it. And this is what happens when you challenge me, especially when you challenge me and it doesn't work. And welcome to, you know, Putin's Russia. It's not the first time. I mean, you know, how many journalists have to like mysteriously go flying off a balcony for us to get the message? This is how he runs the country. And it's a good reminder of, you know, what this war is about. This is like fundamental to the war is that Ukraine, the Ukrainian people don't want to be run by an authoritarian leader who kills all of his political dissidents. That's very core to their, you know, there's a reason that like hundreds of thousands of people are willing to go die in trench warfare on the borders of Ukraine and Russia. And it's not because they're excited about the prospect of Putin running their country. It's because they recognize that this is who he is. And we should take the reminder to heart and understand that this is why the Ukrainian people are fighting is because they don't want to be in Russia. They don't want to be Russia. They don't want to exist in a country that's run like this. So it's incredibly frustrating to watch the kind of like mental gymnastics to excuse this one in 16 million odds thing of happening is, oh, maybe it was somebody else or the plane just actually crashed or whatever. It's like, you know, the message was sent. He made his point. This is what he wanted to do. And this is the reality of the kind of leader we're dealing with. This is how he solves problems. And it's not not bueno. We can accept that and just sort of acknowledge it and deal with it accordingly, I think. People you talk about in the media, and I've noticed this, it's like the, the reverse Occam's razor or whatever. It's like, if they can find the most complicated explanation for the simplest of phenomenon, they will do it. And look, it's not to say that you just find the simple explanation and then you shut your brain off. Like, obviously, if there's new evidence that suggests something else on any of this stuff, then you don't keep your mind open to it. But like, this is such a simple story. The guy literally was marching on Moscow (laughs) for reasons that I don't understand. Uh, He stopped. And he very openly challenged Putin's leadership and embarrassed him and left himself exposed. And we we may never know exactly what happened there, why the guy didn't go to Moscow. Uh, Turns out that, you know, in hindsight, that was better odds than what he got uh, in leaving. But I agree with you. This, This is a reminder of what this war is about. And it's not just him. It's, you know, you talk about the journalists, like Anna Politskaya was killed in 2006. You know, this has been going on basically for the, since the beginning of of Putin's reign. And if you want a good primer on this, Frontline did a, a really good documentary on the rise of Putin and talked about this bombing of an apartment complex that was attributed to Chechen separatists and all the questions around where that came from. And, you know, essentially Putin has been murdering innocents. And it's a reminder that the pilot of this plane uh, had nothing to do 
with any Prigozhin's actions, from what we understand, and had two children and was killed. So, you know, we uh, you know we started by joking a little bit about this, but he there's innocence almost every step of the way here. The, obviously, the war is claimed untold innocence. There are plenty of journalists who've been killed. There are plenty of people in the path of you know Prigozhin versus Putin. It's like you know the tarantula versus the scorpion. But there are there are so many people who are in Russia or outside of Russia, like Ukraine, who are victims of Putin's political regime. And I think it gets to like this false equivalency that we see out there, like this real politic argument that we're hearing. Oh, the U.S. isn't perfect either. And I'm like, look, the U.S. has made a lot of mistakes, but it's absurd to compare the United States to Russia, period. And like the way that Putin does his business. And, and we could go through that I, if the audience really needs to hear that. But I, I doubt if you're listening to this podcast, you need to hear that. I totally agree. I think fundamentally, there's a motivation here that exists for him that is all about power and conquering, you know, the former Soviet Union and whatever. And he views somebody as a threat. He's willing to dispose of them. Somebody as a threat to his power inside Russia or outside it. And as we're seeing in Ukraine right now, He's happier ruling over a pile of rubble and ash than he is not ruling over it at all. And and that's what the Ukrainian people are experiencing right now is, you know, Russia is just going through these border cities and towns that exist in Ukraine and destroying everything, whether it's bombings, whether it's coming in and committing war crimes on innocent civilians. They're, they're not leaving behind something that is going to be a gem to rule that even if they were successful in taking over some of these towns, which for the most part now they haven't been, I mean, as like the net scoreboard looks that the, all they're doing is leaving behind a wake of people who despise Putin and despise his regime and will never happily live under his rule. And, you know, like I said, I think this, this is a reminder of that. It's a reminder of how he handles those problems. It's a reminder of what the Ukrainian people don't want to live under and for what it's worth, not totally sure it's the best move for Putin either. I mean, Prigozhin's really interesting because he's sort of more nationalist and aggressive and in kind of our Western definition, like awful than Putin is. I mean, the the people that really support him want a more aggressive, full-throated war in Ukraine. And now he's been kind of martyred which for the moment, I suppose, solves the immediate threat of him building up this popularity and challenging Putin's rule. But, you know, a lot of very interesting Russian writers have, have written about this that I've been reading in the last few days who are saying on the ground in Russia, you know, maybe 20% of the country is like the Prigozhinists who like support his worldview. And that number is not going to get smaller because Putin blew him up in a plane. And Everybody knows what happens. No, no, nobody. People in Russia don't think he like accidentally died in a plane crash. It's not. It's not. They have Telegram. They have these channels. They talk on, despite the kind of you know iron curtain of the press or whatever and the state media. So, and like you said, that Putin probably isn't doing a whole lot to stop the narrative that Prigozhin died from getting out. Right. He wants people to know that if you challenge me, this is how it ends. And you know, I just don't know long term if it's going to help him or hurt him or, you know, build this uprising against him. That's now going to come from people who don't support the war and from people who support the war happening in a more aggressive way. So, you know, he's not in a position of strength. Obviously invading Ukraine has been a huge mistake. Russia's economy is struggling. There's all this internal discord that's happening. It's a really crazy time there, but you know, the upshot of this specific story is I think it's very obvious what happened. And I'm not sure why anybody tries to make it more complicated than it needs to be. Putin has been in power since 1999. So I was a, wow. I was in high school when Putin took power. So he's been through Bill Clinton, two terms of George W. Bush, two terms of Barack Obama, one term of Trump, and now he'll be on a term of Joe Biden. It's really wild to think about. Yeah, I can't imagine living in a system like that where you have the same ruler, president, leader, whatever for all that time. And it should be said for some of those years was extraordinarily popular. I mean, it's always hard to know in the kind of state media, you know, the polls and all these things out of Russia, but there was a time when he was sort of 
as close to unanimously popular amongst many Russians as you could be because the economy was doing well and they were restoring the strength of the military and they were like taking their pride back and all these things after the fall of the Soviet Union. But I think those days are over and I don't think he has, you know, there aren't many moves on the board for him to kind of unify the country. And I think maybe in his eyes, he thought this war would do that. And it clearly hasn't. And, you know, there's no way to cover up sending tens of thousands of 18 to 25 year old kids in a war and them not coming home. I mean, families are going to notice that. And I, I think his future is very uncertain. It might not be, you know, six months from now or whatever, but I think the next five or 10 years are going to be incredibly chaotic for him and for Russia as a country, just because of what he's done the last few years. Yeah. And and one thing to clarify in what I said, uh, by the way, there was this period of time where Medvedev was technically head of state. Uh, It actually overlapped with, um, I was at the Security Council at the time I was working at the UN, but it was, you know, everybody knew where the orders were coming from at that point. But he, you know, Putin came out as almost like a, the West, I think, fooled themselves on the thing and he was kind of pro-Western. And I don't think anybody really knew what they were dealing with. And that like, there was this deep sense of grievance that came from Putin's time working in intelligence during the Soviet Union and feeling like, you know, and I could imagine like when you have like leaders like Yeltsin who are like drunk and incompetent and groveling to the Western world, I could imagine that forms your politics. And, you know, in a weird way, like Putin's comparison in many ways is like a Castro, right? Who also was in power forever and who also was responding to something legitimate at the time and, you know, was responding to sort of Western corruption in Cuba. And, you know, for Putin, there was, there was something real he was responding to. And I think the problem is if you're the average Russian, like, what do you get from that? You know, like the same as things with Cuba, right? I mean, maybe this gets, I wouldn't call Putin a populist, but, you know, Castro is, it's like, you, and this is where I'm like a little worried about Modi is like you start by speaking to the like legitimate grievance and quickly pivot to just keeping yourself in power. You know, that seems to be the playbook. Do you think that there's a path forward at this point for, I mean, let's say Biden gets a second term. I, I don't see any world where he can have kind of quote unquote normalized relations with Russia when Putin's the president. I mean, Mm -hmm. historically, it seems like no. And I just, I wonder how much pressure that puts on Russia internally to want a different leader or some kind of reset. Yeah, I'd be curious how you read that. You see like what the truce could look like, right? Because Putin needs something to say he quote unquote won, right? So you need to you know, I forget what the saying is, but you always want to leave the door open for somebody to retreat or whatever. So it's like, what is the, the what does the truce look like? You probably spent more time thinking about this than me, but obviously, I think guaranteeing that Ukraine doesn't join NATO is like one thing that I think everybody seems to agree is a possibility because it's like more symbolic than anything because the U.S. has already shown that it's willing to defend Ukraine as if it were a NATO member in many ways. Well, I guess if it were a NATO member, we would put our own troops on the line, but something meaningful, at least, we're willing to do. What else do you think there is? Do you think that the U.S. would agree to, and Ukraine would agree to cede any territory? I don't think Ukraine would agree to cede any territory. I think from Zelensky's perspective, it's like, let's use, squeeze every resource we can out of this and get back the land that was annexed in 2014 in Crimea and you know, push as far as we can, because it's from their perspective, they've been kind of on their heels begging for attention and help for a decade, you know, and it took this sort of full scale invasion for them to get what they wanted. I, it would probably involve the economic side of stuff, you know, lifting sanctions, maybe depending on how much Putin cares about his relationship with Iran and China, some kind of like multilateral deal where we are backing off economic sanctions and making things easier for the sort of the axis that exists against the the Western world, as well as, you know, the guarantees that we're not going to allow Ukraine into NATO and won't put our troops on the ground and that kind of stuff. But 
Yeah, I mean, truly, that's sort of why I asked is because I don't really know. At, th- at this point, it feels like Putin's such a pariah and what Russia's done has been so horrible that it's like, you know, we're going to see it through until there's some kind of conclusive moment, whether it's Putin backing down and pulling troops out or Ukraine claiming some sort of victory or the opposite, Putin somehow countering what's been happening or getting help from a country like China or whatever and, and quote unquote, winning the war. So yeah, I, to me, that's kind of one of the scariest things is every time he does something like this, like killing Prigozhin or whatever, it's it, it the lesson is so well learned to the Western world that you're kind of like, okay, how are we ever going to work with this guy? So as long as he's in office and Biden's in office, it seems to me like there isn't really a great path out, which is sort of the scary part. Mm. Well, on that optimistic note, let's move to our final segment here. <laughs> so uh, I sent you this article from Matt Iglesias, which he argues there are two types of progressives, moralists and pragmatists. And he, he says that you know there's this commentary out there that seems to assume that voters are driven by economic issues. And you know if only... Democrats were more, you know, back to populism, which is the threat. If they're more economically populist, they'd be able to appeal to the average voter, yada, yada, yada. But what he says is, by and large, the sort of alignment and realignment of voters is on social and cultural grounds. And there's a rift within progressive circles that actually has very little to do with economic policy and and much to do with moral issues. Uh, Are you persuaded by this argument? I'm persuaded to a degree by it. I think the riff that he's describing is very real. I think the people who are the quote-unquote moralists who are sort of exercising the purity test, which I do think exists, I think they're less powerful and a lot louder and kind of influential online than he sort of lays out in this article. I actually think for a lot of Democrats, voting Democrats who are not super big politicos and engaged in like the everyday controversy, you know, they're voting based on healthcare and union stuff and education and sort of the quote unquote kitchen table issues. And while they might be hobbyists and the sort of purity test stuff that he's talking about. I don't I don't see that as like a central rift in the party that's having some, you know, shaping everything else that that's happening. That that part I feel like is a little bit overstated. I will say like I think what he's observing is definitely a real thing. I mean, I one of the stories that I tell often and I don't even know if I've brought it up on this podcast, but I remember during the 2016 campaign saying something about Trump, about, you know, how he's like a media master while also criticizing one of his policies. And I got like love bombed by all these Trump supporters. Like, yeah, he isn't like they didn't care what I said about him, you know, his trade policy being insane or something. They were just like, he is a media master. You're seeing it like finally a blue check understands just like come to the dark side, like we're riding the Trump train, you know, whatever. And then like a couple of days later, I complimented Elizabeth Warren about some policy proposal she had released when she was in the Democratic primary. And I didn't call her Senator Elizabeth Warren. And like a couple hours before I tweeted about a male senator and said, Senator, you know, whatever. And I had these comments, like responses to me on Twitter that were just like, it's Senator Elizabeth Warren, like your sexism is showing. And I'm like, this is why you guys can't win anybody over. I'm saying that I like this policy perspective, like this policy proposal of hers. And what you're doing is making me hate you because you're like trying to demonize me for a simple shortening of a tweet and not using you know, her proper moniker. And- I, had, I had an experience like this, by the way. I had, I think it was, it was some Bernie Sanders book. I think it might've been like, it's okay to be angry about capitalism or something like that. And I was like, I just took an Instagram video and then I showed how much the book was being, it was like Penguin Press, $35 or something. And I just, <laughs> I just put it out because I thought it was funny. And people were like, I've never seen like, 
I don't, I don't interact with, I don't tweet that often. So it's like the, the reactions to it were so defensive and weird, but at least that one was on economic grounds. But I think like if, for people who are listening to this and you're like, well, what does he mean by moralist here? He quotes this woman, Liliana Mason, who went on a podcast recently. She's a John Hopkins political scientist. And this is what she had to say. She says, you can compromise on what level of taxation we should have. You can compromise on things like, you know, how much aid we should give to foreign nations. But the problem is when we're talking about whether an entire group of human beings in the country who are American citizens should be eradicated, there is no compromise position there. We can't compromise on whether black Americans should be treated equally as white Americans. So the, the reason why Iglesias picked this quote to set up the difference between what he calls moralists and pragmatists is that he, he actually thinks that this encapsulates the choices that elite progressives are making now, which is they actually are trading like per this quote, compromise on taxation, right? They're saying, actually, we're, we're willing to bend on economic policy, but we are not willing to bend on our vision uh, of race. Never mind the, I shall say, like, I don't want to put this delicately, but like exaggeration that what we're talking about is the eradication of races here. I didn't realize that was the fight right. that we're in, but they make it hard. You're talking to somebody and like, well, you want to, you, you're okay with, I had a conversation the other day about this. Like you want black people to be eradicated or erased. And I'm like, of course not. Like that's absurd. And anybody who would make that claim shouldn't be welcome in polite society. I'm not sure that's the fight we're in right now. Yeah. And, and it's, the framing that those people exist, not just in the Democratic Party, but that also that's what the opposition wants. I mean, you know, that that is like, if they don't agree with me, then they are sort of straw manned as the most extreme caricature that exists of like the racist, the transphobe, the bigot, whatever it is. And my experience has been to that end that that population of people definitely exist. They are out there in the party. They're very loud online and they are super well-educated and super elite and all these things. But I also don't think that they have a ton of policy influence yet at this point. And I don't think that they have a ton of influence at, you know, in Congress or even at, you know, in many state government levels, whether it's governor's mansions or state houses and Senate. So it's hard. It's like, you know, it's like describing a rivalry between two teams when there's one team that wins every time. It's like, eh, that isn't really a rivalry. And I think that would be my one big overarching criticism is I think like Maddie lives in a very online world. So he has to interact with these people and probably views their power as being a little bit more inflated than it is. But at the same time, I do think it's important that that segment is growing. And I do think it's important that a lot of people sort of like talk in these terms. And certainly there are people like that. I mean, the people you're quoting, you know, they have power. They're at the tops of institutions and economic think tanks and progressive think tanks and things like that. And that's worrisome to me. It's not a particular brand of politics that I like very much, especially the whole unwilling to compromise on X, Y, or Z but it sets up this kind of purity test where, you know, it's it's small tent politics. It's like once you do that, every single person out there who you think you idolize, you're going to be able to find some disqualifying flaw in them. And I think that's sort of, you know, we went through that whole mania in 2020 and 2021. And we came out of it with Joe Biden, who is not somebody who passes those purity tests, which Iglesias talks a little bit about in this piece. So, yeah, I mean, it's it the divide exists. I'm skeptical of how powerful that sort of the the moralist segment really is. But I do think, you know, if you're somebody who wants to talk about politics publicly, you need to be prepared to engage with them because they're going to come for you eventually. Yeah, I also think it's like, it depends on where you live. If you live in San Francisco or certain pockets of society, you're going to deal with more of this than other people. And, and I do agree that sort of pragmatists tend to win out most often. And, you know, I do wonder whether it's that, that sort of moralist coalition is growing or not. It certainly was growing around the time of 2020. And I felt like at that time I was running Arena, a progressive organization, and the sort of pressures within progressive circles around lining up 100% behind 
whatever some blue check mark thought was a real pressure. Whereas now, and that's so those were the sort of days of the the purgings of the David Shores and whatnot. I don't see that as much anymore. And it's possible that I'm just not in that world as much as I used to be. Uh, but I certainly don't see it in my circles. Like most of my friends are Democrats. When I talk to them, they're by and large, like are willing to say things privately that is very different than the the Twitter conversations, you know, around very hot button cultural issues. But a lot of them may not say them publicly, right? And that difference is actually what I think certain publications like the Daily Wire are able to exploit because they're able to say, all right, let's talk about trans people in sports. Let's talk about grooming, which I think is a exaggerated phenomenon to say the least. Uh, and then they catch people like, you know, Chris Hayes the other day. I don't know if you caught this moment where there was this debate around something that happened in Missouri around um, some, you know, youth transition issue. And I, I very purposely am, am really dumb about this stuff because I really don't want to wade into these discussions. But apparently Chris Hayes said something that like, hey, like basically pointing out the the reporting of somebody, it might have been the free press or something, saying like, oh, you reported that this like transition happened at this clinic, yada, yada. It turns out the New York Times confirmed it or something last week. I'm butchering this. And like that difference, like it's, it's almost like the spread. Like if you look at like the Daily Wire and all that, they're like, I view them as like almost money managers who are looking at like arbit <laughs> political arbitrage between what people are willing to talk about privately and what is being said publicly. And that spread is where they make their money or where they gain their audience. And the more often, like it, the less safe it is to actually have conversations about some of these things, the better it is for political opportunists. I don't know. That's kind of a complicated theory, but. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, that rings true, I think, for me, certainly in like the conservative blogosphere and sort of new right media, it seems like the difference there is something that they can capitalize on. And questions like that, that I think are real legislative, you know, policy issues. I mean, we saw it with the debate around affirmative action, where there was sort of like this super elite high-end progressive liberal viewpoint on that, that like this was this terrible thing the Supreme Court was doing and was going to ruin America and destroy opportunity for like lower income black students across the country or whatever. And then there's sort of this bounce back feature of the kind of more heterodox or less, you know, I don't know how exactly to describe, but there's liberals out there who are maybe not so prescriptive about their politics who are like, actually, I don't know that affirmative action is a great thing anymore. And I'm not really sure that we should be doing it still. And here's reason X, Y, Z. And then there's this sort of conservative media apparatus that's like, we've been talking about this for years and we're the ones who are like the truth sayers. And everybody's sort of screaming and talking past each other a little bit. But the people who are in like the strongest position to own that conversation are the ones who are saying, well, we've actually been taking this line that, you know, affirmative action is maybe not the best thing for black people or whatever for 10 years. And so, you know, you should have been reading us this whole time and you'd know that this was going on and this thing was happening. And, you know, it's a strong place to be in. And it's part of the reason why a lot of these publications and people in the media space and the sort of, you know, the I think a lot of the Democrats that Maddie's talking about in this piece sh should feel more of an incentive and feel more inclined to engage in these conversations in like a really open way compared to what they actually do, which I think is is not so much that anymore. Um, there's not a ton of debate happening in progressive circles, especially maybe in the Democratic circles more largely, but I think the groupthink thing is is very real and produces a lot of what he talks about in this piece. Yeah, so fascinating. I mean, the moralists and the pragmatists. So I think like as we look ahead, I think, yeah, I think we'll just have to wait. I mean, the the last primary election was, you know, it, I'm trying to use this lens for that, but, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are such weird stand-ins for this because they're not, I think they very much, as, as hard as I won, was on them and the pragmatist sort of segment that we did, 
they're very much about economic policy, whether it's my favorite economic policy or not is a whole different thing. And Bernie Sanders has like famously resisted a lot of certain culture war uh, debates. So I actually think like to give him credit, you know, even though he's not my guy, like he certainly seems to be focused on nobody would accuse him of being a pragmatist, but he, he's maybe like a third, <laughs> third way here. He's neither a moralist in the sense that Iglesias is talking about, which is non-economic moralists, what is kind of what he's saying. Certainly not a pragmatist. He's third, which is like a maybe economic moralist. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and maybe that's the way forward for the Democratic Party. Translation, to come full circle as we round this episode out, economic moralist, what's another word for that? Populist. <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. that's the answer for the Democratic Party in the end. We need more populists. Forget yeah, everything I, I said. Good luck it. to them finding a populist in their ranks these days. I would like to see it. Oh, I don't even know. Honestly, I can't think. We of talked what. about all the Republicans, like JD Vance. Maybe somebody like Sherrod Brown or something. I don't know. Brown, Sherrod yeah, Brown. Brown is the guy, probably. I don't know anything about his personal background, yeah, and maybe I emphasize personal background too much. But I mean, Brown to to win Ohio. I mean, he he might and very likely will lose this next time. But to be able to hold on to Ohio as long as he has. It's fascinating. People say Fetterman, although Fetterman, I think, from what I understand, at least he falls within the sort of critique, at least based on his personal background. I think he comes from wealth, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong. Yeah, he was mayor of that town in Pennsylvania, and his parents were sending him like $5,000 a month or something so he could take his mayoral salary. That was you know, way less than it should be for a public servant, but nonetheless was not money you could live on. And I think he was like in his thirties when that was happening. So yeah, there is, there's a lot of pretty damaging stuff out there about him as the quote unquote populist though. You know, he still wears a hoodie and shorts around a lot of times. And I appreciate that. The, the populist style at least. And it is, it's worth, I got to think about this, you know, part of what I'm doing is, is like a cousin of the ad hominem argument, which is like, I'm focusing on people's background as opposed to the arguments they're making. And I think that's for like a whole, you know, part two of this discussion is like, it, it, it would be one thing if it's a one-off, right? Like, hey, there's just one leader out of 20 populists in this country who happens to be a billionaire. <laughs> it's another thing if they all happen to come from the right. upper crust of society, then I think we've got a pattern that perhaps says something about the populism itself. But I'll refine that theory. I think I agree that generally all things equal, I prefer the populace who actually grew up in, you know, the kind of demographic and socioeconomic situation he alleges to represent. I, that makes it feel more authentic to me. So I'm on board with that. Cool. All right, Isaac. Well, welcome back uh, from the populist enclave of Suffolk County, Maryland. <laughs> I look forward to reading some more. And uh, yeah, obviously we'd love to have you on. And I think Next time I'm, I'm going to try to get you and Ricky together because I, you know, we we did I did a lot of Vivek bashing today, and I know that she she has a different views, so I will acknowledge that, and we can get you guys talking about that. I, I imagine he'll still be in the news. I don't think he's yeah, going yeah, there. absolutely. I love it. I would love to do it. That sounds great. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Make sure to get out there and rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't yet. Subscribe to Tangle at readtangle.com, and uh, we'll have a great weekend. We'll talk to you on Tuesday.